Good morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's my joy to see you again. Praise God for watching over us throughout the night and give us, giving us a new day. You know, he does not sleep or slumber. He who is our keeper will not let our feet be moved, is what we read from his word. Uh, please do turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24. We read this verse yesterday, and we'll read it again. As we think about determining the literary form of the text, Um, Luke 24, verse 44. We read this. Then he sent to them, that is Jesus sent to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, in biblical interpretation, it is critical for a faithful preacher to seek to know the type of literature that he is handling. Is it a narrative or is it poetry? Is it prophetic or is it a gospel? So when you talk about the general we are thinking about the type of literature before you. We must begin with the understanding that the Bible is one book and not one book at the same time. Isn't it? The Bible is a library of 66 books which were written over a period of more than uh, 2,000 years by many different human authors. These authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit in their thinking and writing. They did not give us their minds. They penned the breath of God. So we found out yesterday that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, able to do every good work. So, the Bible is the breath of God. It's, it proceeds from the mouth of God. And so when Jesus was being tempted by the evil one, he said, that a man shall not live by the bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We also saw that the Bible is without error. It is infallible. It cannot mislead. But it is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. We saw that the Bible is final 
It's a final word of God. So human authors were used of the Spirit. And so Peter tells us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But you realize then that these men who lived in different times of history had their own unique experiences. Moses, for example, is a man who knew Africa. He was in Egypt. He was trained by the best tutors in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. He had also been a shepherd. He had traveled quite extensively. So the way he writes will be different from the way a man like uh, Samuel, Samuel could write, or Micah of Moresheth. All these men had their different gifts, different experiences, different abilities, uh, different skills. But what is very clear is that Yes, the scriptures are breathed out by God. Yes, these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But we also must acknowledge that the Spirit of God used a touch of their, these human authors' experiences, their skills, their giftings to communicate the truth. So we do not believe in mechanical inspiration. We believe that these men were, uh, they, they, they wrote, and the Holy Spirit superintendent, and as they wrote what they wrote, they had those unique gifts that God wanted to use for the proclamation of his truth. So clearly then, Paul is different from David. And Solomon is also different from David, although David was his father. Because they had different writing skills. So we'd find that uh, a man like Luke, he wrote after a thorough research and presented a chronological account of things as he had researched and found out. But the Holy Spirit used his research so that they used, uh, the God used human authors as they were to bring about his inspired word. Their style and their personality comes through from their writings. So for instance, if you look at uh, how John writes, John was a fairly repetitive man. He cannot write a paragraph without writing the word love. And you see that in his gospel. You see that in his three letters. God used that. But as he used their different styles and personalities, he created this marvelous wonder of scripture. And we have what we have as the word of God. So what I'm going to do then is, I want to show you from the Bible that Jesus himself recognized that the Bible is written in different ways. So in the verse that we read, what does he say? 
that there is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is the Old Testament scriptures. So, so what he is saying then is that the law of Moses is not the prophets. And the law of Moses and the prophets are not the Psalms. They are different. He recognizes that and he communicates that to us. So when we read the Bible then, we have to know that there, there are those different types of literature that uh, we have to deal with. Then what I want to do is show you that this dif uh, how to deal with, the, uh, with these different um, types of language uh, that is used in the Bible. Very quickly, I want to list them, and then I'll go through each one of them. There is a law. There is history. There is wisdom. There is poetry. The Gospels, or the Gospel, as a type, as a general of writing. Letters or epistles. And then prophecy and apocalyptic literature. So let's delve into each one of them. The law. When we talk about the law, we are dealing with the imperatives of scripture. What are those? Commands, demands, requirements, rules, regulations. They need to be observed and obeyed. And the law is not just in the first five books. The law is throughout the Bible. Both in the New, in the Old and the New Testament. But when Jesus here talks about the law of Moses, he is referring to the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They contain instructions and precepts given to Moses by God. They are, um, they are divided up again into three categories. There is what is called the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Let me explain. The ceremonial laws were laws given to Moses which, were, which had religious rituals and all those regulations that, 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 uh, were, that involved matters of religion and worship. So when you talk about uh, temple worship, there would there were laws regarding how you were to approach the tabernacle and later on the temple. Uh, there were various, uh, various um, furnish furnishings or furniture in the temple. Various, re various regulations on how the tabernacle was to be erected. 
various regulations regarding the priests, the Levites, and the way they were to deal with sacrifices. Those were all ceremonial laws, cleansing laws or regulations. These ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Christ. Then there is the civil laws. The civil laws were laws to do with the government of Israel as a nation. What should a man do if his ox were to kill someone else? What do you do when, uh, uh, you know, there were, there were many, many civil laws governing the people on how they were to live. Uh, if there was manslaughter, for example, you accidentally killed someone, what do you do? The provision of the word of God was that you were to flee to, to the cities of refuge. Go there, stay there until the high priest died. So the manslayer would flee to a city and remain there. And while in that city of refuge, the avenger of blood could not go grab him and kill him. He could not do that. But when the high priest died, if it took seven years, if it took 20 years, you remained in that city until the priest died and then you could you could uh, walk free. Laws regarding slaves. The Bible did allow that people may own others as slaves. If you had debt and you could not pay, and you, have, you had no means of paying, you would go and give yourself and say, I'm giving myself for three years. Be sending my salary to my debtor. And some were perpetual slaves. Imagine if you married well, you were a slave. You and your wife and your children were his property. And if you decided, enough of this slavery, let me go, then uh, you, you, you would forfeit your wife if you married her within his house and leave the children behind. If you didn't want to do that, you would go to him and say, Master, I love you so much. I'd like to remain. And he would get your ear and, and boy it. And he would, you would be bowed to him forever. You and your household. Those were several laws. They are also fulfilled in Christ. Then there were moral laws. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments uh, were given to as a standard of morality and uh, they show the attributes of, who, uh, of God and they tell us the standard through which we can approach God. And the summary of the Ten Commandments is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then secondly, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And so the first table contains the, 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 the first commandment, you shall love God. And the second table is the moral law regarding your relation with your neighbors. The moral law is also fulfilled in Christ. 
but it's binding for believers. In other words, you're not saved by observing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments help you to see how sinful you are and how sinful you can be and to show you that you need to flee to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. So if you're in Christ, Jesus Christ gives you his righteousness. And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be seen so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see, Jesus Christ became our righteousness. Fulfilled the law of God perfectly. So we are saved by faith in Christ who obeyed God's law perfectly and his righteousness has become ours. We are saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And having been saved by faith alone, when we are saved, Christ gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to obey his law. And though we may break the law of God, yet we repent and go back and seek remission, forgiveness by his blood. So that's the relationship that we have with the law. We, we are not saved by the law or by the obedience of the law. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But having been saved by faith in, uh, by grace, because of faith in Christ alone, then we are expected to do what? To be obedient children. We are given the obedience of faith. And that's what then uh, James tells us, that your faith will sh be shown to be true faith if you are an obedient child of God. That's a law. So the law then uh, defined the proper relationship with God to God or to one another, with the world, even the alien, as well as for worshipping God, governing the people, priestly duties, what to eat, not to eat, how to build a temple, proper behavior, manners, social interactions. They govern their civil rights and regulations as well as how we are to, uh, to live before God. So that, that's a law. How do you preach the law then? I've already given you a hint. How do you preach the law? whether from the Old Testament or from the New Testament. How do you preach the law? We know how to preach the law from the letters of Paul especially. If you look at uh, a book like Ephesians, Paul in the first three chapters will give instructions, what we call indicatives. He tells us that this is the way God is, this is the way that his church is, this is the way Christians are. Okay? And so when we understand who God is and know what he has said, when we understand what the church is and how we are to relate with one another, then he says, do this. Imperatives never come before indicatives. So when you preach, 
when you have a passage of the law before you, you have to preach it in such a way that you have to explain well who God is or um, uh, his relationship with his, with his people before you can tell them. And now God says, do this. You must never preach the law without the gospel. Okay? Never preach the law without the gospel. What do I mean? How many times have you seen someone begin as someone with you must and he ends with you must? And he has not told you anything about the grace of God. He's not told you about the help of the Spirit. How can that be Christian preaching? Any Indian priest can preach that. It's morality. And preachers are good with preaching morality. Now, I'm not saying you don't preach morality. But I'm saying you cannot preach morality without grace, without the gospel. Are we together? The law must drive you to the gospel, to the good news. So let, let me give an example here because this is so important. You look at the letter of Paul to the Romans. And he tells them that it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then from the very beginning, he speaks about the righteousness of God. Now, we cannot talk about the righteousness of God without talking about who God is and the fact that he's righteous and he's given his regulations. And he keeps on talking about the law and how we cannot keep the law perfectly. Because you know, you know that no mere man since the fall that is the fall of Adam, is able to perfectly keep the law of God. Or is there any? No, no mere man can perfectly keep the law of God, but does break it continually, perpetually in thought and word and deed. Us all. And so the Bible says, and Paul gets to Romans 3, and he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. All. Everyone. And he eventually nails that, that, that nail when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But then he says, But God. That's a hinge. But God being rich in mercy. He has told, he has told you everything about the law of God. But then he tells you about God's mercy so if you preach the law and never turn to God's mercy you're not a gospel preacher because you can tell your people all you want that they must obey they must obey but they will never be able to obey apart from the mercy of God so that's how you preach the law the law is like is like a god or a stick God is a sharp stick. Uh, the, the reason why shepherds carry those, those sticks of theirs, sometimes they can hit, 
Sometimes they can prod. Now, the law is like the rod that prods, pushing you. You can't do this. You can't do this. You have to look to Jesus Christ for help. You have to look to Christ for help. So that's, what, that, that, that's the way we preach the law. The law drives people to their knees and to the cross of Calvary and tells them that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. You miss that and you're not a gospel preacher. So please, I've been to many, many, many churches and you hear a lot of do, 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 do. And you're telling people to do what they can't do. Please mark this. Christianity is not primarily a do religion. Because every other human religion is a do religion. And what marks Christianity from any other human religion is, uh, is that whereas everyone else tells people do and leave, Christianity tells you that it is, it is, it is done by, by Christ. That's what, that's the difference between us and Muslims. That's the difference between us and Hindus and all other religions. Whereas we, we preach, it is done by Christ, they preach, do, but surely they can't do. And that's why there is no hope of salvation. And any, any sect like, for instance, the, the, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, movement, I, I dare not call it even church. It's ever telling people, do, do. But do they preach salvation? No. Do you think a typical Catholic person can ever have assurance of faith? Why? Because it is do, do, obey. And they can't. They know they can't. They are ever breaking the law of God. So I, I plead with you by the masses of God. Don't be like that. Do not be a preacher of do, 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 do. Of imperatives, imperatives, imperatives. No indicatives, no gospel, no grace. So when you preach any law, you have to point people to Christ. Secondly, that's a law. And I hope I'm not going to go uh, that way with every one of them because there are many. History or narratives. These are stories. They, they are descriptive. Okay, now I've used three words. I've spoken of indicatives, imperatives, and now there is descriptive. What is descriptive? It tells you what happened in a, in, a, in a fairly neutral way. So, and I was telling you, uh, I was asking you this yesterday. When you read of how Rebecca ended up becoming Isaac's wife in Genesis 24, is that is that an imperative? Is it indicative or is it descriptive? Yes? It is descriptive. It's simply telling us this is what happened. 
It's not condemning. It's not approving. It's simply reporting. And the Bible has a lot of that. History is usually like that. So the stories and epics like Genesis, some part of Genesis, Exodus, some part of Numbers and, and Joshua and Judges and Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Jonah, Acts. They contain history. And so when these books are grouped together, they are commonly referred to as history. That is from Joshua all the way to Esther. They tell us the history of the Jewish people from the time of the judges through the Persian Empire. In the New Testament, Acts contains some of the history of the early church. And the Gospels also have a history of the life of Jesus. Some epistles also have a chronicle of events biographies and autobiographies of some of the apostles like Paul. There is also another category of narrative called romance or uh, like um, the book of Ruth and uh, Song of Solomon. How do you preach those descriptive passages? You remember our, our, first, uh, our second session on redemptive history? These books are all part of the redemptive history and it's pointing forward to, to Christ. So when you come to the book of uh, First and Second Chronicles, you're wondering, how do I preach this? How do I preach genealogies? Have you, have you ever preached through the genealogies? What are they there for? Genealogies fast track. They fast track the redemptive history. You know that? So you come in Genesis and um, you, it, it's like you are walking in the redemptive history. You, you, you come to a book like uh, Joshua and it's moving a little faster. You come to First Chronicles and it is supersonic. You're moving very fast to get to Christ. So when you're preaching through then those genealogies, and I am, encourage you, maybe I haven't said this yet. Let me say it. Do you know what is your job description as a preacher of the gospel, as a pastor? Do you know what is your job description? Your job description is described by Paul to the Ephesian elders. And he told them, Pastors, when I was with you, I did not withhold anything that was profitable to you. But I brought to you the world council of God. To ask you, are you committed to preaching the whole counsel of God to the flock of Christ? Are you?
But then you find that uh, there are pastors who have never read through the Bible, the whole Bible. I'll leave that question to Pastor Wally. He will ask you whether you've read through the Bible. But the point I'm making here is this. When you preach the world Bible, then you have to figure out everything in the scriptures and work through all these genres, whether it is the law or history. But you have to preach it in such a way that it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we come to wisdom. This is the literature of maxims and sayings, including Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some parts of Psalms. So wisdom literature focuses on questions about the meaning of life, like Job and Ecclesiastes, and on practical living and common sense, like Proverbs and Psalms. Using common, uh, using common sense is spiritual. Amen? Yes? Using common sense is spiritual. Praise the Lord. I say that because there are times when uh, you find some Christians not wanting to use their common sense. And so the Bible asks you, if you put burning coals on your chest, will you not be burnt? That's common sense, isn't it? Who doesn't know if you're going to carry charcoals on your chest, it's going to burn you. So I know a brother who, after three, I think it was four days of fasting, he decided to walk by the, the beehives at 3 p.m. when they are the most aggressive. And he thought God was going to, he, he, he thought that he was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was stung. He was putting burning coals on his chest, isn't it? It doesn't matter how much anointing you have. If you put burning coals on your chest, it's going to burn you. The other matter of common sense is uh, when you fast, please drink water. You need water throughout. If you get dehydrated, you'll die. But if you're drinking water, you'll be fine. And so many people have died fasting without water, in case you didn't know. That's common sense. But that you will find in the Bible. I don't know why I'm saying all that things, because they are not on my notes now. In the New Testament, James is one of those uh, under this category of wisdom. Now, this literature contrasts our faulty human wisdom to God's reasoning, uh, 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 perfect reasoning. So when we live for our own will and not his will, we will experience grief and frustration. Not because God is vengeful and angry, but because we lead ourselves that way because of our own pride and arrogance. And this literature warns us of our evil nature and desires. But again, where do we find the remedy? In Christ. Number four, poetry, closely related to wisdom. These are the, 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 
the poems in the Bible, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. Poetry is found mostly in the Old Testament and is similar to modern poetry and yet also dissimilar. Pastor Wale is going to talk a little about uh, poetry, but I need to point out to you that poetry in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is fairly different from what we have in our English poetry and our Kiswahili Mashairi. The Bible poetry is different and cannot very well be translated by English. Poetry that we are used to is usually based on, on rhyming. But the biblical poetry is based on rhythm and tempo and beat and especially parallel, par parallel, parallelism excuse me parallelism parallel laser excuse me in other words if you look at uh, two railway lines or, or if you look at a uh, uh, railway line you have one metal on one side and another metal on the other side they are parallel so Hebrew poetry is like that whereby a statement is made and then it's repeated or it, a statement is made and then it's contrasted or a statement is made and another one is made and it's like a staircase so we talk about uh, um, synonymous parallelism or synthetic parallelism or antithetic parallelism it's mostly contrasting so for example the heavens declare the glory of God Psalm 19 what's the next statement you can see that it's the same thing repeated if it is uh, antithetic you'd say something like Proverbs 28 verse 13 he who conceals his sins will not prosper that's one statement but he who confesses and renounces will obtain mercy so there is a contrast there with the word of the conjunction but so the 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 one who conceals his sins on the one hand will not prosper but how will you prosper confess and renounce other books of the Bible like uh, uh, the prophets will contain some form of of um, poetry even the Gospels uh, and you would sometimes find uh, this poetry coming out uh, just like that like for example the Magnificat is another uh, poetry in the Gospels in the, in the Gospel of uh, Luke so then we come to the, the the prophetic writings prophecy when we come to prophecy Many people assume that 
prophecy is always it's always telling us the future but no prophecy is both past present and future was Moses a prophet he was a prophet par excellence and Jesus himself is compared to Moses Moses as a prophet wrote Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 11 all the way was he there when those events took place was Moses born before Abraham or after Abraham then how is he telling us about Abraham by the prophetic word God revealed it to him because you see what makes a prophet is that he is speaking from from God and so the definition of a prophet there in 2nd Peter 1 21 is this these are men who spoke it's in the past they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so God revealed to Moses what things had already taken place that is past prophecy but then as as they journeyed through the wilderness in Exodus Moses is writing ex the, the very exact things that are happening that were happening at that very time what is that is it prophecy or is it not is it prophecy when when Moses lifts up the bronze uh, the the brazen serpent it was but they are seeing it it's happening before their eyes in other words prophecy is unfolding before their very eyes when Ezekiel is condemning the the elders or the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel 34 he is reporting things that are happening right now and then woe unto you because you kill the sheep instead of shepherding them woe unto you because you have not gone to 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 look for the straying ones and the lost you have not bowed up the injured you have not healed the sick you have not fed the, the sheep this is prophecy but it's right now but prophecy is also in the future Isaiah writes Isaiah 53 and he tells us that that the servant of the Lord will be smitten by God and afflicted a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief we esteemed him not he writes what who is he talking about Philip is reading that text in Acts 8 and he's wondering was he speaking about himself or about someone else thankfully Philip turned up and helped the Ethiopian eunuch to understand that so the Ethiopian eunuch did not know whether he was speaking of himself or of someone else until the until Philip came and he told him he was talking about the Messiah Jesus Christ believe in him and you'll be saved and then he said now that I believe here is water what prevents me from being baptized 
So again, prophecy finds its fulfillment in, in Christ. It's telling us about Christ. Um, pro prophecy is the type of literature that is often associated with uh, predicting the future. But we need to realize that even when it comes to predicting the future, there are two aspects of prophecy. It predicts what will happen and it teaches us or challenges us to live or to line up morally uh, as we depend on Christ. So prophecy exposes sin, calls for repentance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows how God's law can be applied to specific problems and situations, such as the repeated warnings to the Jews before their captivity and exile. So prophecy then runs through lots of the Bible, Isaiah, through Malachi. Many, many sections of the Bible are called prophecy. Did you know that there are over 2,000 specific predictions that have already come to pass hundreds of, hundreds of years after the author's death? That's why it's the word of God. New Testament prophecies is mainly found in, in Matthew, especially Matthew 24, in the book of Revelation. Both uh, Prophecy has both an immediate call to a given situation and also it has fulfillment in the future. And that's what you call prophetic foreshadowing or foreshortening, whereby uh, they, 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 they speak of things and you think that it's only referring to the now and here, but it's also talking about the future. Let's come to the Gospels. The good news that we receive through salvation by the work and life of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel, good news, written by his apostles. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They contain a bit of all the literary types with the primary purpose of getting you to know Christ, to, 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 uh, to love Christ, to trust in Christ, to serve Christ, to know what he has done on our behalf so that we may go to him. In these works, the stories are not necessarily in chronolo chronological order or sequential order, except for Luke. And what we, what we find in the Gospels are both stories and descriptions, miracles, and all that. Then there are parables. These are the sayings of Jesus told in a short story or illustration form that are narrative and instructional. They teach a truth, not many truths all at once. Usually, they... They would be examples of what's going on. Like, for example, I would say that when Jesus taught about the parable of the sower, he may perhaps have seen someone sowing, planting. He wanted people to relate the truth he was bringing to them and what they knew. Because you know that teaching involves... Teaching, what is the primary principle of teaching? 
It is from known, known to unknown. Known to unknown. Now, pastors, you need to know that. You have to teach people from what they know to what they do not know. So Jesus did that. He employed parables to teach and communicate truth that, that people didn't know. But sometimes you'd find that uh, uh, these illustrations had a deeper purpose than the face value of what they knew. Like for example, it took some thinking and a desire to learn in order to understand. And he said that's why he used parables. To conceal truth. He used them to keep people of impiety without intent or faith from bothering him. Sometimes he wanted to challenge the skeptics and the people who were unresponsive like the Pharisees. One of the warnings when we come to understanding parables and preaching parables is to watch out not to make too much of a specific addition in the parable more than what was intended. For example, those who love to spiritualize and allegorize the Bible, please don't use as a method of interpretation, is that they come to, for example, the story of the Samaritan, uh, the, the Good Samaritan. And they will tell you what the us represented, what the innkeeper represented. And they make the, 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 the story to be almost like the Pilgrim's Progress. Everything has a meaning. That's called allegorizing. And, uh, or spiritualizing. And when people spiritualize, it's very arbitrary. Preachers don't even agree amongst themselves as to the meanings of some of those spiritualized items. Please don't be like them. Rightly handle the word of truth. And then there are the epistles referring to the 21 letters in the New Testament written to a specific audience and it's practical for us today such as Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, the two letters of Peter, three letters of John, Jude, and the first three chapters of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches. Now, epistles are the personal letters from the apostles to different churches or individuals. But these letters are both different and similar to the letters of, uh, of their time. And we need to realize that when you, when you read a letter, you don't read one paragraph and leave it. You have to, to read it in totality. Okay? But how many times have you preached from Romans 3.23 or Romans 6.23? You love it, don't you? Imagine if I wrote you an email and you picked up only one statement and ran with it. With no context. No understanding of the context of the whole letter. Are you likely to arrive at the meaning? No way. Now I'm not saying that you can't preach from, John, uh, from Romans 6.23 but you need to understand the context in which it is said. You have to understand the context. 
So then let us challenge congregations to wake up out of their selfish ways, out of their ungodliness, and concentrate on Christ in specific ways to correct error in belief or living. Epistles begin with names of the writers and the recipient, then a greeting, a reason for the letter, then the central message or the body of the letter. And then there is usually a closing remark in most letters. They deal with concerns and false teachings and in need, that needed immediate correction. Some epistles were written in response to questions from churches like 1 Corinthians or clarification or, or for another letter such as 2 Corinthians. The teachings of the epistles applied to both the church to which it was written and also to Christians today. That's why Paul could tell the Colossians to read their letter and to also get hold of the letter written to the Laodiceans uh, and read it as well. It's believed that the letter to the Laodiceans is efficient. But um, the point is, it was relevant not only to the Colossians, but also to other churches, to us. So when we preach from the letters, again we have to know of those, uh, those events that were happening then, the, con the, the, the historical context as we saw yesterday afternoon. And then lastly, it is apocalyp uh, apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is a combination of narratives, prose written in figurative language that has vivid imagery, poetic phrases that are intended to exaggerate for a purpose, such as Daniel and most of Revelation. Apocalyptic writing is more specific, uh, is, it is a more specific form of prophecy that is coded. Prophecy that is coded. Apocalyptic writing is a type of literature that warns of future events from which full meaning is hidden to those who are not intended. Apocalyptic writing is almost a secret giving us glimpses of what is to come through the use of symbols and imagery. We may not know the meanings now, but time will flush it out as you read the rest of the Bible. It is found in Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation and parts of Matthew. When we come to any literature, we must always remember that scripture interprets scripture. You must never ever interpret any passage in a way that contradicts other passages. Never. But sometimes this is what we do. You meet with a Jehovah's Witness evangelist and they tell you that Jesus is not God and they quote for you a verse they tell you that he was 
the first fruit. He was the firstborn. And what do you say? What do you do? You tell them, but John 1 1 says, in the beginning, now that's not the way to handle the Bible. Okay? And that's not the way even to help him in his false understanding. The way to help him is to go to the very text that he has quoted and deal with it sufficiently before you move to another text. Because the Bible never contradicts. So you see, when he says, the Bible says here, and then you say, but the Bible says here. So it's his word against yours. If you have no understanding of what Christ being the firstborn means, then you need to tell him, I am not quite ready right now. I have something to attend to, but let's meet on such and such a time, and then we can talk about it. We'll try to understand what that means. And then you go back and you are prepared, and you come and deal with that specific text. And you will find out that if you read the context of that text, what comes before and what comes after, the meaning is right there. The meaning of that first one is right there. So you don't need to argue. Then after you have sufficiently dealt with their text, that's when you go to your new text and say, this text is not the most, it's not the clearest text on the subject, but I've explained to you what it means, but see what this other text says. And the Bible never contradicts. So that's a way to handle all the Bible. Please, scripture interprets scripture. We are learning how to rightly handle the word of God. And this is it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for helping us see that even Jesus himself had these categories of understanding various types of scriptures. That he spoke about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And now we see there are many other types that have since been written, both in the Old and the New Testament. Help us to grasp how, uh, to grasp the meaning and the text of the text before us always, to know the context and to teach it accordingly, so that uh, our people may be helped. And help us especially to teach the world council of God. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>